0: This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now.
1: Hi, this is Mike Balleman. this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 208, brought to you in association with SMART and Enlistedbore.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dilip Tasman, CEO and founder of Jeeves, brackets, tryjeeves.com to talk about the super important topic of how to design a product slash company in order to maximise the chance of raising funds from VCs. An interesting topic to roughly all founders. Jeeves help businesses organise their employees' expenses under one unified platform which includes flexible funding in multiple currencies. They have over 3,000 clients in over 20 countries, and we shall hear more about them later. More pertinently to our topic, however, Jeeves recently raised a $180 million Series C round. And as I thought that more than a few of you listeners out there might like to have $180 million or perhaps even more in your pocket, maybe you should find out how to go about raising those sums of money. We've talked to many VCs before, And we've talked about VCs before, and also we've touched on fundraising once or twice. However, we've never particularly talked on how, if from day one of your startup, you design it with, as it were, fundraising in mind, to make it appealing, as it were, that this will make what comes down the road so much easier to you than trying to retrofit your company in, say, three years' time to what the funders actually are expecting to see and what turns them on. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Dilip. Thank you for joining me on the show today.
0: Thanks, Mike, for having me on. I'm excited to uh, start this conversation.
1: And you're probably excited and a little warmer than I am because um, I'm in London, which, uh, as usual, in in June, the middle of summer is about sort of 14 degrees, grey and uh, raining a bit. And you're coming from um, Miami, which is a little warmer, my... uh, my younger daughter's boyfriend, who went to school over here, he, he did a degree in uh, Miami marine biology or, or some such like that, and uh, I hear from both of them that actually it's quite warm down there and occasionally it's a little bit humid. More recently, as the podcast listeners will know, Bridges and I have taken to watching escape porn quite a lot on, on YouTube, <laughs> and in particular the idea of buying a catamaran and uh, sailing around the world instead, <laughs> instead of all this sort of emailing all day and VAT in the state and all that kind of thing. So I'm familiar with a place in Miami I never knew existed before. I thought it was in Greece, which is Annapolis, where you have a sort of biannual um, boat show or something, which looks very nice to go. Yeah, anyway, so what's Miami like for you? What what particular delights of Miami sort of seduce you when you're not working 25-8 as most (laughs) founders do?
0: Yeah, so, so Miami, is, Miami is really interesting. I think there's a real uh, rejuvenation happening here, especially in the last two years. I'm actually originally from Florida, but more central Florida, um, and so just kind of seeing the energy that's in Miami in the last two, three years, I think is, it's just really unique. I moved here from a few different places that I was kind of living in probably late last year, and we're kind of gonna be based out here for the next few years, and to your point, miami really has two weather cycles it has really nice weather from october through about may and then it goes through different stages of hotness so we're in that second box right now but it's actually not so bad this um, cycle so i think july august is when it gets really you know hot to a certain extent but again it's two months out of 12. the quality of life is really good and uh, we're we're happy that we kind of made the move down here and honestly for my type of business the amount of investors and even founders that have met here it's just kind of through the roof and there's this energy and optimism I find really refreshing so yeah we're, we're pretty happy with our boom down here and uh, if you make it down here let me know we can grab a beer.
1: That sounds good and I'm always very careful about talking about politics in, in in any country I can talk a little bit about mine but people normally get politics in other countries completely wrong but as one of my interests is governance per se America is going through very interesting governance times at the moment in terms of the federal state and the states themselves this whole federation, confederation process. But viewed from afar, rightly or wrongly, one person who seems to have been a bit of a hero and, and, and quite responsible for a lot of the renaissance of Florida is Ron DeSantis, who, certainly viewed from over here, seems to be doing a great job at attracting all sorts of businesses, from Elon Musk to um, uh, all sorts of internet characters. Actually, a chess player, I watch as well, recently. I think he's moved back over, over that direction. So Florida seems very much more... I mean, it's almost overtaken perhaps Texas. I'm not sure about whether it's overtaken Austin yet, but it seems to be kind of a premier business destination if you don't want to be in the kind of, you know, New York-y, Wall Streety thing or sort of Silicon valley thing and California's 10,000% taxes.
0: So, I mean, I think Florida is interesting because it really is a little bit of a purple state. So, you get a mixture of both the blue and the red versus some states that are you know, on one end of the spectrum or other. I think the mayor uh, here, uh, you know, Suarez has done a really good job of kind of raising the profile. And Miami specifically, good or bad, has kind of embraced that crypto narrative, which previously, I don't think it really had that one thing that was unique to Miami. And I think that's a really good thing for the ecosystem here. So, you know, so far, I think they've done a really good job. The, The reality is to see how long it lasts and whether it's just kind of something that's quick and done or if it's something that's part of like the rebuilding of kind of the economy and the ecosystem here specifically for entrepreneurship and tech. I think the no taxes thing makes it a lot easier um, in terms of a decision but I think previously you know, Florida always had the no taxes, but what it was missing was just that second layer of um, kind of investors, entrepreneurs, ideas, kind of mixing, et cetera, which I think it has now. So I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. That's just my kind of normal state. And I think Miami kind of reflects that. And so we're excited to be here.
1: Yes, exactly. And there's, there's very much a critical mass of these kind of things. When you've got enough atoms together, you start to get a planet or a star and exactly. more, more come and more common. Critical mass
0: is a good way to kind of think about it. I, I think that's what it's kind of like hitting right now.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and, and we meanwhile, other things that were the stars in the past can sort of have explosions and supernovae and, and, and fling people around the place. So you mentioned that you'd lived in other parts of the US of A. So what has been your career journey to founding Jeeves from, uh, well, not from a baby, because we'd have to, have to cover <laughs> quite a lot of years of not that much interest, but uh, fast forward to where you want to start from.
0: Yeah, no, so I grew up all over, actually, and my parents were both uh, retired doctors. Uh, well, they're retired doctors now, but they used to be you know, working doctors before and we ended up in Florida and Florida has been home for the last 20-25 years And so before Jeeves, I started another company based out of New York that was in the marketing technology space And prior to that I worked in investing uh, and I was at Stanford GSB in the business school About 10 years ago, which sounds like a long time now. And so, you know, it goes by very quickly But I always knew that, you know, my path was really something tied to being like a builder and on- and an entrepreneur My parents are both doctors, so they expected me to go into medicine that didn't happen so uh, i still don't think they have any idea what i actually do but you know they're very proud of me as any you know parent is of, of their children so yeah my journey to get to this point has always been kind of in the space which is building and kind of uh i think the Timing for building something right now is just really unique. The The ability to get to market is just so much faster than it used to be even 10 years ago. Uh, with you know, everything is commoditized. You can start a website, you can get access to servers, etc. So it's kind of this golden age to kind of keep building, especially in international markets, which is why, you know, I think Jeeves has been growing so quickly in the last year, year and a half.
1: Yes, excellent. Well, we'll hear a little bit more about Jeeves later. And as you say, you've seen this whole fundraising from various positions around the circle, which always helps give them, gives a more rounded picture. So in terms of this whole point about engineering your business from, as it were, day one to be a, a, an attractive thing for investment, listeners will know of the whole process of friends and family, sweat equity, angels, A rounds, B rounds, C rounds, institutions, partners, blah, blah, blah. So we, we can take that kind of red. But Before we dive into specifics about which type of investor is attracted by what, let's just address the question that some listeners might be thinking of, which is that, yeah, but hang on, but Surely a good business is going to attract everybody. It's a bit like a pretty flower is going to attract bees, wasps, and, yep. and everything. So is there such a thing as a good business per se that's going to attract all categories of investors? Or is it a question that there's an overlap? Obviously, there are good businesses and bad businesses, but there's an overlap between that Venn diagram circle and the circle of, for example, what angels are after or the circle of what VCs are after or the circle of what, yep. I don't know, JP Morgan as partner are after or some accounting
0: firm. So I think there's two components to this. So, one I really don't think you can build a business uh, for investors uh, because if you build it for investors, uh, you're probably not building it kind of for the right reason. So, I, I don't think the right mindset is how do I build something that's going to be funded? I think the right mindset is how do you build something that has the potential to really have an impact and really have a large outcome, and that in turn attracts the investors, right? Because investors want to invest. In big ideas they want to invest in big outcomes now one caveat here is you do not always need to have investors to actually have a big outcome it's just that some companies especially the space we're in fintech financial regulation etc you need more capital just to get off the ground and get started think of a bank right so Again, just kind of stepping back, you don't need to have investors to have a successful outcome. And I would really kind of push a little bit against like whether you should build it for an investor. But if you look at building big ideas in big markets, that is what attracts the investors. Because for investors, what you're really selling is a big outcome, right? They want to say, hey, I came into Jeeves." when they were starting out at like whatever, 50 million and now they're worth $2 billion. Like that's what I did. Like that's my investment dollars, right? So it's that ability to show, hey, this market has that potential where we can change banking, we can change payments, we can change lending. That's what attracts investors but if that's something that doesn't you know resonate with you as someone that's in the you know day-to-day trenches grunting and building i would say you know don't build it for investors like that's not how you're going to actually get the investors build something you're proud of build something you want to actually do and the way i kind of look at it is one way or the other i'm working whatever 15 18 hours a day so why not build something really big because i'm going to be working the same whether something really small or really big so you know, if I look at like what it is that attracts investors, it's the concept of like a really big idea. And in early stages, just tagging on the second part of your question, if you're a seed investor or an angel investor, you're really looking for two things. You're looking for a team and you're looking for a TAM, right? So TAM is total addressable market. Team is obviously the people that are building it. And the reason you do that is because if you have a large enough space and you're tackling a big enough problem, even if you don't hit it on your first try, there's enough room there to actually pivot and still have a very successful outcome. As you get into the A's, the B's, you need to have traction. So that's the third T. So you have team, you have TAM, and then you have traction. And so traction starts coming in once you start getting into the series A and series B. And then when you get to the series C, you need to have a functioning business, right? You can't just sell the idea. Like I'm the leap, I'm gonna build this massive thing. Awesome, like what have we actually done, right? So it gets harder and harder because you're not selling a dream once you get to A, B, C, because you need to have some numbers tied to it, right? So Really, the one thing that I would say is like build what you want to build, pick spaces that have the ability for you to pivot because nine times out of 10, you probably will have to pivot a little bit and then target it to the investors that are right for that stage. A seed investor, an angel investor is not the right person for an A or B size round you know a large sovereign wealth fund or a large investment firm is not the right company for like the seed and a right so they have different levels they play in they have different returns that they're expecting but it all comes back to like tackling a really big problem in a really big space
1: excellent well you're quite right of course that uh, there are plenty of businesses in this world that don't need funding and one of the things that i enjoy just from a SME entrepreneurial perspective during the sort of whole COVID lockdown craziness was speaking to small businessmen around here like a guy running a, a, um, a wine merchant shop who did really well out of COVID because yep, everybody over here was turning in, into alcoholics because there wasn't anything else to do so it, his profits were through the roof and not joking actually over that period and um He's now organically grown by taking over the adjacent place and turning that into a a, a wine bar, which has its own challenges. So you're quite right. There are plenty of good business in the world. You know, he doesn't want to take over all wine merchants around the world and nor nor should he. You know, that's that's his thing. And that's what he's into. And you have to, to an extent, follow your heart because, you know, we all know that willpower and discipline. We've all got willpower. We've all got discipline, but it's always finite. Yep. I can make myself, I don't know, go for maybe say one mile run. I could maybe really do a five mile run, but can I do a 10, 20 yeah. mile run every day? Well, I could for a while, but we know it's not going to.
0: I think it comes back to like the intrinsic motivation. And that's why I keep coming back to like do something, build something that you you would want to build independent of like who's funding it or what's there. Like that should be something that's intrinsically motivating for you because otherwise to your point, it's really hard sometimes because you, you're you the one in the trenches, you're the one that's there when no one else is believing or believing or thinks it's the best thing or thinks it's the worst thing. And either way, you still have to get up the next day and do it again. So you have to kind of really want to do it independent of like everything that's outside there. So yeah, I, I would strongly advise against building it for an investor. But I do think if you tackle big markets and big problems, that is what attracts investors. and. Secondly, to your point, you don't always need investors. Some very, very fine businesses have been built without investors. And when you do take funding, the outcome potential has to change, right? If someone's giving you $100 million, they're not expecting $150 million. They're expecting a billion dollars on the other side, right? Whereas if you didn't take funding and it's just you running it and you exit for 20, 30, 40 million, that's an amazing outcome, right? So the the outcome scale changes as you take funds in as well, which is something I think founders don't realize a lot in the beginning. And then you kind of understand it a little bit more as you start growing and as your company takes in more uh, capital.
1: Yes, and I I very much like, I hadn't heard of it before, your your team tam traction model, which is a a nice way of remembering what is going to attract as you go by. And hearing you talk about that scaling up process, you know, on day one, you've got a vision or you've got a dream and you're gonna have to pivot when it comes to implementation and you find out what the market really wants as opposed to what you thought it wanted and, and all that kind of stuff. And often you find that there are certain I mean, maybe over here, Monzo might be an example, the app bank. There are certain types of founders who are really good at the vision thing, really good at attracting initial uh, capital. You know, they really talk the talk and, you know, we're going to do absolutely everything with this card and it will, you know, it will marry your grandchildren off to the the appropriate mates and, you know, it'll ensure the sun always shines and and that that kind of person. But if you're a kind of hyper visionary type of person like that, you may not be the kind of person who's there for the C's and the D's when it is much more about turning a craft or a cottage industry into kind of a BMW factory, yep. and you've really got to tighten all the screws, and you've got to check that you've got good screws, but you're not paying too much for your screws, and, and all that stuff can start to sort of wane in interest for the guy who just wants to hit the ball out of the park. So on the one hand, you've got the question of how the management team changes over a time, yep. from those people who are creative and artistic and they want to do something really good, And for those people who can turn that kind of innovation into more of a machine uh, as it must be to replicate and rule out exponentially around the place. So you've got that in terms of the, the management team and the company culture changing and the people perhaps changing. On the other side, I think the one thing that is implicit in what you say, but we might want to draw out, which is that as you're going up the scale... Let's say on, on day one, you woke up one day and thought, I'm going to form jeans and it's going to do with the expenses and, and all that kind of stuff. At that point, you 100% own your idea. It's, you know, it's literally within yep. your skull, as it were. And you probably haven't told anybody about it. As you may have noticed, having done a few rounds <laughs> by now... You're no longer at sort of day zero and you're at day whatever it is, 999 for the sake of argument. And you go to these things called board meetings mm-hmm. now and then and, and you've got these investors and <laughs> uh, and strangely enough, having given you some money, they act as if they own part of the business. They act as if it's <laughs> no, no longer completely your business, but that they've got some say in it. And, and even though they're not there all the time, they still think that what they have got to say is of interest. So you, then you've got the challenge as a founder and as you're growing and, and as you're designing the business, which is that you get to a stage where you're co-designing the business Yep. with other people who've got different motivations. I mean, VCs, an obvious example yep. of VCs is they've got funds and, oh, God, all the other funds, that, you know, plenty of our investments gone bust recently. We've got some bad PR. You know, we really could do with the realisation in the next couple of years, whether it suits you or not and, you know, whether that's explicitly said or implicit behind their actions on smaller things. So maybe you'd like to address those two questions, which is, one, the nature of the team and the C-suite team as you go through these various rounds from craftsmen through to engineers, as it were. And then also separately, the fact that these people who kindly give you lots and lots of money then act as if they own part of you, part <laughs> of your business at
0: least. Well, that's that's kind of the contract that you sign up for.
1: <laughs> so,
0: you know, on the first point, I, I really think when you start a company, the company itself is like a living organism. It's not static. It's not just one entity. It changes as the times change. It changes as you add people. It's its own living entity and a big part of being a uh, leader, a CEO at the company is knowing which areas to invest in and which areas not to invest in as your company is in different stages. You cannot do everything perfectly from day one. So there's a point of like prioritization, which is actually one of the hardest skill sets, which is when you are a seed company, what is that one thing you have to knock out of the park? Is, is it your product? Is it your marketing? Is it your go to, go to market? Like what is it that you have to get right? That's what you invest in same thing you do when you are a series a company then as you get to series bc you can do more things but you can't still do everything so like as an example when we started we didn't really um you know start with like in-house marketing or like performance market we had an agency and like it was a trade-off of resources which is money uh for time right we, we needed to get to market quickly we didn't have that skill set what we did invest a lot in was the product so we spent probably about 12 months building the product before we launched because that was core that was what we couldn't get wrong right and so when you start a company really you should figure out what is that one function you have to get right and that should be your you know do all every day and and i really strongly believe the ceo has to be involved in that because you can't just be like oh i hired someone to help me figure that out no that's your job right getting that one core function actually done right and then the second thing when you start a company i think People forget this, but like they try to get everything done perfectly and try to build this 10-year company. And it's like, you know, just focus on the next year. Like you might not even make it to the next year, right? And so like get to the next year, then get to the next year. It's taking one step at a time. And when you like are just opening a product or opening a launch, really your goal should be if this product was free, would people use it? Okay, great. Now you can start charging. If you paid people, would people use it? Okay, great, now you can make it free. If you can pay people and make it free and they're still not using it, that's probably a good signal that, you know, you should probably take that information and maybe pivot or look at something else. But people spend so many cycles of like trying to figure out this perfect launch, this perfect product, and I'm just such a strong believer in like your speed and your nimbility is your biggest advantage uh, when you launch and honestly, one of the biggest advantages startups have, which is that ability to just move very quickly and to, to the, the original question, what happens as you scale? Is you start adding layers and you need some of these layers because you need processes you need to have board meetings you need to have structure you need to have a team but what you don't want to lose is that nobility. and so the hardest thing that a company has to do as it goes from c to a to b to c is it starts moving from the super hyper growth stage to a scale uh, to a stage of scaling and scaling is actually solving a very different problem than the zero to one growth product market fit box right so you start a company first thing figure out if you have product market fit like just or high water, you should probably figure that out because if you don't, it's like putting water into a bucket with a large hole in it. Once you figure out product market fit, that's when you start tightening the business model. And so that's the scaling part, right? And so that's where we are right now. And exactly like you pointed out, it's very different. You have to start bringing in people that have seen some portions of this before, but not enough that they try to uh, adjust the entire company to reflect that, right? So banking is a good example, right? We talked to many seasoned veterans from other banks from large players and we want their expertise especially for fraud for risk for underwriting like that's core core expertise but we also don't want to become completely like the you know 50 year old institution because that's exactly the gap in the market that we're trying to hit right so you need this person that has that ability to see the full box but is very very comfortable in the gray and I strongly believe most building for a startup happens in the gray, right? So if you're not comfortable in that uncertainty, if you're not comfortable in that chaos, it's going to be very hard to take that zero to one company that's now from a C to a series A to a B to a C because you really live in that gray area. So again, this is a long way to say, like a startup is a different entity in different stages. In the beginning, really figure out what is that one core area you need to get right and prove you have product market fit. And then as you go to B, C, and D, we look at really bringing in people that have seen some parts of it before, but really that's cue towards living in that gray area because most of the building for a startup happens in the gray area. It's not in the black and white.
1: I see. Well, I asked as as usual far too long a question in far too many parts. So we'll, we'll come back to the people around the boardroom sure. who think they own part of the company because it says so on a piece of piece of paper. Whereas in your heart, it still feels like your company. It's like your kids. You know, yeah. you still remember them when they're little, but then they're sort of uh, earning more than you and <laughs> uh, choosing a nursing home, and you realize that time's gone by. But just on that one, I mean, as you say, you need the processes and layers and structure um, uh, as you scale up. And we've had plenty of podcasts in the past on the cultural aspects of that. But in terms of the team, as you say, you will hire people and that happens organically. And just to talk about the C-suite. Is it the kind of case that one way you can do this, I'm thinking a bit like a Gantt chart where you've got lots of sort of lines overlapping each other, which is that... For the sake of argument, you start off with a C-suite team of, I don't know, after a year six or something, and let's say for the sake of argument, you stay at six for five years, ten years, and you stay at six until you're in the FTSE 50, you know, you're still there. By the time you're in the FTSE 50, you're going to have people in that team of six whose skill set is managing people who manage people who manage people who manage people who manage people, because that's what the the job will be. And on on day one, you're going to have people who are creative and don't mind working sort of all, all night and oh, yeah, that's what we were doing yesterday, but now we're changing we're off here. Is it the question, it's a bit like playing cards, I'm thinking here. Like, you've got, as a CEO, you've got, say, five cards in your hand, the other five C's around you, and, and this card, for some reason, gets played and it goes off or something like that of its own accord, and then you get another one in, and, and therefore, not just the individuals, but as a team as a whole, you're, you're slightly buying people who like working further up the particular curve. So, as a whole, it's like, a bit like a peloton of cyclists, so, you know, you you're the whole, the sort of, the peloton is moving. Yep. But you still, at any particular time, and, and people, people say this who float, of course, that, look, we want some, I want some guy on my team who's still the creative one who thinks we can do things differently and quickly because I don't want to lose that spirit. So if I've got one bloke with that kind of, all woman, with that kind of voice in Tobono's version, wearing that kind of hat, yeah, know, hi, I'm the, I'm the crazy joker clown. I think everything's possible. I don't believe in imitations. Then you've got one person representing that view. And, it, and, and at the other end of the spectrum, you may, you may have some boring FD who thinks you shouldn't run out of money and you've got to be very careful over what you spend. And- it depends,
0: I think, a lot on the function and it depends on the stage. I think in the beginning, There's a lot of value in having very strong utility players. So, someone that can do multiple roles well at like 70 80 90 percent efficiency because the reality is in the beginning everybody's wearing a lot of different hats right and so as the company grows you want people that are a little bit more specialists right because you want them owning a full box finance accounting across five countries that's not something you just pick up one day like you have to know how to actually do accounting across five countries right and same thing for our technology stack we have teams in six countries we have a cto that's done that before you can't just wake up one day and run like a global team with like 100 engineers in like six countries, right? So, and you have to kind of find those people and those people are not hard to find, but, uh, sorry, are very hard to find and you have to actually convince them to come and join you. So if you look at the team, I think the way I kind of look at it is you want people that are standalone, what I call like centers of excellence, meaning they can motivate their own team, they can bring that own energy because you don't want to be the only person doing that because that is the, that's how you burn out. And that's how you become like a single source of failure. So I think what we've done well, if you look at the sea level that we have, is we've filled it with people that have that same standalone kind of energy and that same wavelength to push the team, independent of whether I'm on every call, which obviously I'm not, but they then bounce off of each other because it's not like me bringing the energy and the power every time. It's everybody getting that differently from different people. And that's what really where a lot of innovation happens, where they'll come to me and be like, hey, we should actually do this different." And I'm like, that's actually a pretty good idea. Like we should do it like that, right? Whereas it's me like staying up at night and be like, okay, like how do we actually solve this thing? It, it's a force multiplier when you find people that also look at it with that same ownership mentality. And I think just coming back to like the key traits and criteria, if you are at a stage we are in, usually you're talking to people that have the skill set, meaning they have done this before, they can do this at some level. So you're not. Really evaluating for, like, can you be an accountant? What you're evaluating for is, like, what is your comfort in the gray area? What is your cultural fit a little bit? And what I like to call this ability for you to be like the center of excellence. Like, can you stand alone motivate your team and the team next to you and the team next to them, right? Do you have that energy level to be able to do that. And then do you have that ownership mentality where you see this as your company, you change the outcome of this company, not leap, telling you what to do right so that's how i kind of look at it but i do agree to a certain extent of what you said which is like you can't have everybody in that same creative box or the same you know, like just doing things as they come, you need that balance between the two. And sometimes the same person can be both depending on the stage of the company and depending on the project that they're working for. And like, we've been lucky so far, you know, my first C-level hire was actually a chief people officer and we brought her over from Facebook and Netflix. And, you know, it was one of the best hires we've done. And it's a real force multiplier because it helped me scale the company from five people last year. I think this year we're at 180. And like, there's no way I could, you know, just do that without having someone that's done this at that level. And I specifically wanted someone from, you know, Netflix has a culture that's also like fairly aggressive and moves quickly. And like, that's something i wanted and she's been amazing, right? And so be invested in that, that was my first C-level hire. That's what I needed to get to that level. And then everything kind of filled out around that. So it doesn't mean that's the only answer but you should really prioritize like, who's that one, two people you have to get right and get those people right because that then propagates down throughout the entire organization.
1: Okay, so that's very clear, very interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking, of the, uh, the the capital letter X when you're talking there that in a way the CEO is at the centre of the X and so below you there is a pyramid and you've got your C-suite people helping you and then above you as it were or you know never mind put it roughly speaking above you you've got the board and okay you're part of the board and then this touches on the other point about having successfully raised money you have plenty of people around there and um It's not unknown for VCs and certainly for private equity, it's definitely the case that they tend to have the idea that you're sort of some servant of theirs, you know, you're working for them and that they provide all this money and all that, depending on how all their terms and conditions and who owns what percent and all that kind of jazz. But just having looked downwards below you, then looking up above you, or at least around you on the boardroom table, Uh, How does that equation work as you're going up and as you're raising all of these funds? How do the balances change there in your experience? So
0: investors, I I think one, you should kind of understand what their motivations are, right? Like they're investors, like they're looking to invest in companies, right? So they want large outcomes. That's what they're investing in. That shouldn't change the fact that you should really, really take your time to figure out who's joining your boardroom, because that is a long-term commitment. It's almost like a marriage. You're going to be with that person for at least five, six, seven years.
1: Through thick and thin, through thick and thin. Through
0: everything. And so, you know, a lot of times founders are just like, oh, I got a check for five. It's like, what's on the other side of that check though? Like, is that person someone you want to be calling when things go bad and for me you know we've been lucky we have two like strong very strong board members with different skill sets but i've been very comfortable to call them even just casually and like you know in a week i'll probably text them every other day three days so nothing's like hey this is coming out of the blue i see them more as like sounding boards and they've also look at they look at it the same way so before you add someone to the board definitely reference check them and then check the firm, right? Like you should absolutely look at this as you're adding someone that you cannot remove for at least three to five years, right? And so do your reference checks, it's probably the best one day you're gonna spend and make sure that's someone you want to be able to call when you need something, right? So I, I think a lot of founders skip this step, especially in the beginning and it's understandable, right? If someone's like, hey, I'm gonna give you 10 million, you're like, well, I can't be too picky, that's $10 million, I need it, right? So it's something worth investing in and then as your company grows, you see the value of that and so, we have Andreessen Horvitz, we have CRV, we have Tencent. They've all been really, really good so far. And I go to them even for like little things. And sometimes I go to them for like massive things where I'm like, hey, what do you think? Have you seen this before? Like, who can you put me in touch with? And I think a good founder is very specific, right? Don't go to them, just be like, hey, like, you know, like help me figure things out. Like I try to go to them with like, I need X, Y, Z. Like, how can you help me get X, Y, Z? That's their job, right? They're, they're not... Just like doing this for fun they want you to succeed that is directly correlated to their outcome as well so be specific what do you want out of them like i need an intro to this bank because like this is helpful as we figure out this bank account in, in mexico and like two days later we have that intro right like that specificity uh sometimes i think founders are just like they feel a little shy or they feel like they should not bring their you know dirty laundry but like bring it all right And like that's the point like they should be the ones On the other side helping you do it versus like they're your boss like they're not your boss you work with them you're helping them make a lot of money just like you know hopefully it's a good outcome for everybody involved but it's a partnership it's not a boss relationship like i don't see it as like that you know top to bottom type relationship they need me probably more than i need them because i need to run the company but i need them to be successful for me to be successful just like they need me to be successful for them to be successful so it goes both ways
1: Yes, and that's definitely the case with the the VCs, uh, as you say. I mean, having spoken to various private equity people in the past, they have a very different perspective, (laughs) which is, no, you are the employee. They treat you like the gardener. You do a good job of gardening, you can stay. You do a bad job, you're out. So
0: your mileage may vary in that regard. One thought on this, right, and the market's changing a little bit. But the thing that's really changed in the last two, three years is capital uh, has become a little bit of a commodity. There's a lot of capital, right? There's capital from sovereign wealth funds, there's capital from hedge funds, there's capital from PE. Something shop. to do with
1: all this QE and printing money nonstop around from central banks. The money's got to go somewhere. It's like rain. It only goes down. <laughs>
0: and and so what's changed a little bit, and I think good investors see this, is you know, investment is a services business. You're in the services business with an entrepreneur that's building a company that might not be the last time you work with them. And guess what? Like Every single company that I have worked with, they've called me as soon as they have a term sheet. They're like, should I take this term sheet? Right, and if that fund or the person doesn't have a good reputation, I tell them that. Right, and so like, if you're looking at that, this is just one investment, that's not what a good investor does. They look at this as a lifetime investment, it's your reputation, that's the hardest thing. Once you lose that, as an investor you're done like no one's going to take the money i mean if it's horrible and that's the only check it's a different story but like no one will voluntarily want to take that right so good investors the best investors know that it's a services business it's a reputation business that's what you build it on it's not the good times it's the bad times like were you there did you show up to bat did you help them with like a clearer you know heart like not with like some malicious intent like and people know that
1: yes and hearing you speak having started about florida and uh, entrepreneurialism in america and all that it's uh, it reminds me of the significant cultural differences between America and um, uh, the UK, and also, uh, I'm sure, uh, the continent um, while we're uh, at it, which is the old cliché, but like a lot of clichés, there's some truth in it, which is that if you have a, a spark of an idea in the States, they'll chuck petrol on to see how big it can be. Yeah. If you have a spark of an I- idea in the UK, people will throw cold water on it to see whether it can survive. <laughs> yeah. But certainly, in terms of the people uh, around you, the added value point versus accountability is very important and of course they wouldn't be doing their professional jobs if they didn't also hold you accountable if they didn't say well look last year delete you said you were going to sort of do 10 times the offices and you did two you know what went wrong they have to hold you accountable but equally if they only do that and i do know vcs who've done that in the uk to founders and made their life miserable well, that tends to produce a certain reaction the founder, who then opens up less and less, who texts yeah. them less and less often. Exactly. And said VC or said individual within a VC, then suddenly is the one in his organisation who gets, oh my God, I had this terrible surprise there. You won't believe what this business has done. Well, the reason he, he that, that they right. probably will believe it is that he's been the kind of person who doesn't engender trust. You know, We're all human beings. Yeah. We're all extremely fallible. We all get millions of things wrong before we, we die. And the more that, in any kind of relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship, whether it's a family relationship, whether it's a business relationship, the more that we can understand that and treat the other person like a human being, the more chance you've got of them treating you like a human being. And then ideally you get this win-win-win situation. So in terms of win-win-win situation and having given these sort of rosy-tinted new age, it's all wonderful and flowers situation. I don't know whether you've noticed as such, but um, there appear to be one or two sort of economic challenges going on (laughs) uh, around at the moment, which either you blame on one bad man in uh, in Russia and it's all his fault or if you take a longer more monetary perspective you you do wonder whether running the printing press is non-stop since 2007-08 uh, hasn't had consequences which uh, the Austrian economists would have told you about better part of a, a century ago but irrelevant as to why it's all occurring we've got high inflation we're at the end of a 40-year bull market in bonds question whether equity valuations are high question whether where house prices are going even before we're talking about CBDCs and globalism and all that kind of jazz but In sailing terms, having mentioned catamarans before, the economic waters, the business waters, are extremely choppy at the moment compared to some of the years that we've seen, compared to when founders have been founding fintech. I mean, over here, fintech didn't exist in the mainstream media until about 2014. Fintech per se didn't really exist until about 2010 over here in the sense that it's used. So just before we uh, wrap up the show and and, and explain to the listeners a little bit more about what Jeeves does, what would your thoughts and, and comments be for the founders out there listening to this podcast? who are operating in these choppier waters but who still need to manage investors who need to grow their businesses and who need to raise money what have you found kind of works in the circumstances along with prayer and crossing your fingers behind your (laughs) back
0: so the market's definitely changed right the market today is not what it was six months ago i think people saw outlines for this i don't think anyone realized how quickly we would get to this point where it went from you know just the top to the middle to the bottom in about 60 to 90 days we actually closed our round in march um so it was right after the the invasion started and you know it it was choppy it was choppy to get it done it was choppy to get it wrapped up and it's become worse since so i think the first thing that you should be doing if you're a founder is just really evaluating what your cash position is how much revenue are you actually bringing in what is your burn going out what is your net burn, uh, and then how do you get that number low? There's only two ways to get it low. One, you increase revenue. Two, you reduce costs. In an ideal scenario, you do both. You get your revenue up and you get your costs down. I think a way to kind of look at it is what, you know, people call kind of like the burn multiple, which is how many incremental dollars of ARR is each dollar burn getting you, right? So that's one way to look at it. And in theory, you should have at least at least 18 months of runway ideally more than 24. if you're at 18 months right now you should be thinking through like what your plans are to you know start fundraising at some point the market right now is not conducive to fundraise if you have to do it you're not going to be able to do it at terms that are friendly for you. But then again, you know you can't be picky when you need to survive, right? If you need to survive, that's kind of your main goal. You take what you can get and you live to fight another day. But that's the first step. Take a real inventory of like, where are you? What's your revenue? What's your cost? How do you get that ratio of revenue going up and cost going down, right? And then the second thing, is basically look at your team, right? Is your team the right team uh, that'll get you through the next 12 months, 18 months, etc. It is really a, choppy market in the sense that uh some of the projections that you might have made as a company even six months ago is probably going to be different Uh, we have changed ours internally we've talked to our investors we're like hey here's what we're comfortable doing like an example you know we do corporate cards we do uh lending both for working capital loans and even revenue financing and we're seeing just this massive increase in demand which kind of makes sense because it's hard to get capital now from investors or from banks and so you know we're a source that people can use to extend their runway what we're also noticing is the risk profile is changing, meaning it used to be something that was maybe a risk profile that we were comfortable with, now it's changing a little bit more because there's so much more demand. So one of the conversations I had with my investors is, hey, we're going to take about two months and just tighten all of our monitoring, our risk, our fraud, etc., before we start feeling comfortable to just open up the floodgates a little bit more, right? And that's a conversation I'm like, so what that means is it might affect of our growth goals but it's the right decision for the company to position us well long term right so if you already have a board if you already have investors have those tough conversations versus like oh the market just did this to us and like we were reacting it's like no we're making a conscious decision to invest in these three four five areas because we want to then be able to turn this back on pretty aggressively let's say you know later in the summer right so that's the second thing which is just assessing is the right team you have and is it the right strategy you have and then the last one which I think you know, hopefully is helpful for people is when you look at basically the company you're kind of building. Is it in the state? I think Paul Graham or YC has this concept of like basically a default alive company, meaning like if nothing else happened to your company, is it in a state that it can survive? And the caveat I add to that is is that a is that a state that you're comfortable with? Just because it's a zombie company and surviving for five years. You know, that's five years of your time. Your time is one of your most valuable assets that you have. And you can make that decision. You can say, actually, like I don't know if I want to do this for five years, or like here are my options and then I need to decide just because it is a default alive state does not mean that's the right state for your company, right? So that's the second caveat I'll just add to that, because people talk about just getting into a default life, but you as a founder have a separate bar for yourself, which is like, is this the state that you want your company to exist in? And so that's how I kind of look at it. Hopefully that's been helpful for folks. We have done the same assessment internally, probably at a larger scale. Um, and we operate in like 20 countries. So we've had to do it by region, by country, but like it's the same concept, which is your revenue versus your cost, increase one, reduce the other one, make sure you have the right team and evaluate your goals, because that's probably going to change. And then, you know, basically make sure you invest in kind of the right outcome to decide if that state of your company that survives for a year or two years is the right state that you as a founder want to be kind of invested in.
1: Excellent. Well, that's very clear. And I think it sort of implicitly emphasizes a point you made earlier, which is that everybody knows this, but um, like most things, you might know that going to bed and sleeping well and being fit <laughs> and exercising and eating well is really good, but it's actually the doing it that proves to be a little bit trickier sometimes in life, that you don't, as a founder, just want to check. You want to know who's writing the check. And the circumstances you're explaining uh, are so much better uh, if your board are uh, sensible and wise, and you haven't got some idiot who bangs the table and says, I don't want excuses, I want results, you know, when when everything is cratering and and gas is, you know, 50 bucks a gallon and and all this kind of stuff, as if that makes no difference to you and you can carry on regardless. So it sounds like a good time to switch to hearing a little bit more about Jeeves per se and telling the listeners out there which of them should be checking you out tomorrow, which of them should be using you, and what you need to be even bigger and better. Before we wrap up at the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partners of the podcast, Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making a board an engine of growth Today. So, you've mentioned the growth of Jeeves to Leap and quite a bit about it, but maybe just going back to basics to finish off so that we're not remiss in our responsibility to listeners. You can tell the listeners precisely what you're selling to who, in which countries, and which listeners should be checking out your website if they haven't heard of you already. Uh, and then maybe a little bit about your plans for the future and what you need to make you even bigger and better than you are today.
0: Perfect. So, Jeeves provides fast growing businesses with access to a unified payment platform. That includes a corporate card, which is a true credit card, meaning you don't have to bring funds, and then we give you a card against the fund. You can actually sign up at trygeefs.com. If you're approved, we give you a card with a limit that you can start spending on instantly, including cash back. And then we also have lending products that include working capital lines and also Jeeves uh, Growth, which is a form of revenue financing. Today we operate in 24 countries, so we cover most of Latin America, the US, Canada, and we operate in all EU countries and UK. And so the idea is once you sign up for the card, you actually don't have any FX fees. So if you have a business with operations that need euros and it needs pounds, you can use the card in UK, pay us back in pounds. Use another card from a separate bin that's within the Jeeves network in Europe and pay us back in euros, and so it reduces your FX fees. And so, if one employee swipes it in UK, one one employee swipes it in Europe, you'll see it at the same time in the same screen in two different currencies. So you get instant cash reconciliation. So, come check us out. It's www.tryguse.com or send me an email, delete d i l e e p at tryguse.com, and you know hopefully we can get you set up with the credit corporate card. And like I said, one of the big differences you don't have to bring your own funds compared to some of the players in the market today you can sign up and start spending in minutes and we provide that credit limit including cash back for you so some of our biggest companies tend to be e-commerce companies fast growing startups uh, and then larger enterprises in the region
1: Excellent, and your future plans, directions, where you're going and what you need to go there even faster.
0: Yeah, so today we have about 3,000 companies using us in 24 countries. We launched last March, so it's been about 15 months. And so we've grown very quickly in the last 15 months, uh, both in terms of scale, products and regional coverage. Our goal long-term is to be a unified payment platform uh, that can work across 20, 30, 40, 60 countries. So think about when you start a company, you have to then open a bank account. You have to then open another vendor for corporate cars, another vendor for loans. Our idea is once you start a company, your next step is opening an account with Jeeves and we grow with you. You can change countries, you can change currencies, you can change your needs and it doesn't matter. We can provide all of that because we do the underwriting. We provide the capital in your local currency and we provide the payment rails to use that on, including corporate cards, B2B payments like ACH, SEPA, etc., working capital loans and lending. And so the idea is, in the next few years, we want to cover 20, 30, 40, 60 countries and build this global business bank from the ground up that works in any country and any currency. And so we're excited to kind of get going and hopefully we can support a lot more entrepreneurs to hit their goal, especially in this market where we can provide an extension of your runway that gives you a little more breathing room for your next round.
1: Excellent. Well, that's a very clear, well-articulated vision. And going back to your tease before, some pretty impressive traction over a relatively short period of time. And on the point about the current circumstances are challenging for all businesses. I can quite see that this will be an appealing thing for businesses to, to check out as an efficiency move, if nothing else, in terms of, actually, at the moment, we've got processes A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, but, oh, we could actually bin all those and just have this one (laughs) at uh, trieddives.com. So I wish you every success in the future, and I hope that uh, Miami and uh, Florida continue to shine a a beacon for the rest of the world about creating pro-business conditions uh, and excellent uh, businesses and excellent products for people and for companies. Um, We all get frustrated whether it's why Washington um, in your world or Westminster in mine, politicians and all what they're up to and all that kind of stuff, but I think it's very easily forgotten, certainly by the media, that the real value in the world, the real growth comes from entrepreneurs, such as yourself, and companies such as yourself. Uh, you know, you, over here we're trying to tax people in, into richness. Yeah, we've tried that before. It doesn't always work, funnily enough. But actually the only thing that uh, does work, and, and this has been the case from when we were cavemen and suddenly one, one guy banged two rocks together and made, made a spark without that guy we will be staffed these days. So let's hope that we can have more entrepreneurs such as yourself and that the entrepreneurs listening to the show will certainly have benefited from your advice and be able to implement some of the thoughts. And by a bottom-up, entrepreneur-led revolution, we can make the world a better place in small ways, in all of our ways, but put together, it adds to a big deal while all the politicians and media carry on doing their blah, blah. So I wish you every success in expanding and taking over the world and thank you very much for all your thoughts.
0: Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. I enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, if you're ever in Miami, let me know and we can grab a quick beer here as well.
1: Definitely. At this rate, we'll go to the Annapolis Boat Show and I'll (laughs) I'll take you over and show you my uh, cat. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional, FS, and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at... Mike at MikeBallyman.com If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash ballyman.
2: We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon Watching a happy moon Come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city, but with the faces so gray, with the pain of... Watch the firelight dance with me 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 watch the firelight dance